to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. All right, welcome back, everybody, to Hotel Bar Sessions. I am your host, Lee Johnson, and I'm sitting here with my co-host, Dr. Charles Peterson, and all the way from Sweden, Dr. Rick Lee. Today we're going to be talking about fear, and as a self-avowed Frady Cat, I am really excited about this topic. What is fear, and how does it affect us both as individuals and societies? But before we do that, as usual, I want to get some drink orders and some rants and raves from my fabulous co-hosts. So Rick, let's start with you. What are you drinking, and what are you ranting or raving about? I am drinking a Staropramen beer which is a nice Czech Pilsner, available here in Stockholm. This week I am raving, and I am raving about moose as food. (laughs) (laughs) So I had a moose carpaccio last night, and I have to say, it was really delicious. One of my table mates had reindeer, so sorry, kids, no presents this Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Also, big moose, Carlos. What about you, Charles? What are you drinking, and what are you ranting or raving about this week? I'm drinking a gimlet, just something nice and perfect for the season as we're basking in summer. So I'll be going with a nice Bombay gimlet. Nice. I am raving about performing live music on a nice summer evening. My band and I serenaded a group of retiring faculty members from Oberlin, and it was just a great, great night. It was so gorgeous and beautiful, but it was just nice being out with friends, playing some music, and just having a good time. And what's that band's name? The band's name is Daddy Issues. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're the Pims. We think about Daddy Issues, but the Pims is what we go by now, in honor of the Pims Cup. Available for your wedding or bar mitzvah. (laughs) (laughs) Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm also going to go simple and summary with my drink this week. I am going to have a tequila and fresca. You know I love fresca. (laughs) And I am raving this week about aging. Now, I know there's plenty of things to rant about about aging. And believe me, I can rant for a whole episode about aging. But, you know, you reach a certain age when there are things that are only available to middle-aged people that suddenly you're like, hey, this is all right. Like bird feeders. We bought a bird feeder. (laughs) And going to bed at 10 p.m. And, you know, sensible shoes. And I think that it's good to be at this point in your life where you're like, yes, this is what I want. This is what I like. And I am old enough to choose it. So, yeah, I'm raving about aging this week. I'm telling you, man, once you strike that bird feeder off your bucket list. It's a whole new world. (laughs) Don't you dare close your eyes. Could I just remind (laughs) our listeners that this is the first time in the history of the podcast three raves oh yeah look at us all happy (laughs) well let's uh snuff out that sunshine and go dark because i know today we're talking about fear charles you're in the hot seat today so what are we going to be talking about actually one of my favorite quotes is franklin delano roosevelt's the only thing we have to fear is fear itself and that's really a nice quote it sounds interesting learning about it in school that man's never been face to face with a moose (laughs) (laughs) But you know his Uncle Teddy ate some moose. (laughs) But considering the various challenges that we are existing in on a national level and on a global level, 
and the rising sense of uncertainty that I know many of us are experiencing, it seemed to me proper to talk about fear, to talk about how it functions on an individual level, how it fits into our idea of human nature, how it has informed human development, how it affects us at the level of the state and society and civilization. So I think fear is something that we really should explore considering where we are now in this moment in history. In order to get some skin in the game on the part of the hosts, I'm going to ask each one of you a question, and I'm going to answer the question myself, but what exactly are your particular fears, Lee, and what are your particular fears, Rick? I mean, I'm afraid of heights. That's Mm. one thing. And that's a fear that I've developed as I've grown older. I don't remember being afraid of heights when I was younger, but now I have a really hard time stepping out on a ledge, an actual ledge, not a metaphorical ledge. I do that all the time. But I have trouble (laughs) stepping out on an actual ledge. I'm also afraid of things that fall in the broad category of jump scares. Like Mm. I don't like to be startled. So I don't like horror movies. I don't like someone to jump out from behind a corner and startle me. But I'm not really sure that I would count that as a fear. So I guess heights is my main thing. Rick, what about you? I often feel a little bit like the TV character, Adrian Monk, who has a list of fears that is quite long. It starts with (laughs) heights, it goes to germs, milk, um, and so on. (laughs) You can't trust milk, man. You cannot trust milk. (laughs) It's inherently scary. So I do feel like I'm afraid of a lot of things, but with Lee, heights is really up there. And I got to tell you that the conference I'm at now was at Sorry, Swedish people. I think it's pronounced Södertörn University. And to go down into the train station and come up out of the train station, they have these long-ass escalators. And I walked onto one, and I thought I was going to pass out. Mm. So luckily, my friends realized this quickly, and they would stand next to me so I could look right in their face and not have to contemplate. So Heights is really up there. And then I guess the next one is the fear that, uh, what would be the word for it? The the fear that goes along with imposter syndrome, like the Mm. fear that tomorrow's the day they're going to find out I'm a fraud. Mm. That's, I think, a second one that's up there for me. What about you, Charles? I'm going to go with heights, definitely. Uncertain around heights. Don't ask me to do any zip lining. Don't ask me to lean over the railing of a tall, tall building. That's not going to happen. So definitely heights. I have a fear, I'm realizing this, and call back to a previous season's episode, I realize I have a fear about getting older and my memory going. Wow. Mm. That's really starting to weigh on me. Senility or dementia or memory loss, that's a fear for me. I also have a weird fear. I think Rick nailed it because of the nature of the business we're in. This sense that someone's going to call you out one day, be like, you know, you are dumb as a post. <laughs> you know what I'm like, dumb as a bag of hair. Dumb as a bag of hair at a conference, and you have no way to defend yourself. You just have to go like, yeah, you got me. It's been a good run. Funny you should mention that, Charles. Lee and I brought you here today <laughs> to... <laughs> <laughs> I teed you up so well, didn't I? I gave you that one so you easily. Did. But also, I actually have fear about what the next generation of humans are going to have to deal with. Mm. Because I think about it through my children. I think about what lives are they going to lead, what adjustments are they going to have to make, what sacrifices are going to have to be decided by them. And so that's a real palpable fear for me in terms of what life's going to look like for the human race in 70 years. Mm. 
I hadn't thought about the memory thing. I want to sign on to that one too. That is something that's terrifying to me. And I don't in general think that I'm afraid of dying, but I am afraid of painful or humiliating deaths. Yeah. You don't want to be on the Darwin Awards. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And my last fear is I've always feared not living up to my potential. I mean, that's an actual very real concern for me that I don't take full advantage of what I'm capable of doing. Do you know, it's interesting that you say that, Charles, because just yesterday or recently, the New York Times had this video. Someone went around Warsaw, Poland, asking people what their fears were. And a Mm. lot of them, the first thing that came to mind was, I'm afraid I won't live up to my potential. One of the ones I found so interesting was someone said, I'm afraid I'm not who I'm supposed to be. Mm. Hmm. Wow. Well, let me just go ahead and add that one to my list. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> You're welcome. But yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> so, Charles, you know I'm going to ask a definitional question, but sure. I do want to get to what exactly this thing that we're calling fear is. Because I think on the one hand, just to use my fears, when I think about jump scares and I say I'm afraid of being startled like that, that seems like what I'm describing is an almost entirely involuntary affect that someone jumps out at me or something jumps out at me. My body is going to respond in a certain way that I can't give a reason for. I can't think it through. I most of the times can't prepare myself for it because it's a surprise. But then when I think about things like what the both of you were talking about, not living up to your potential, not being the kind of person that you want to be or should be, those seem like anxieties that you've thought through. And so you can give a longer story about why this is something that you're afraid of. So I wonder when you talk about fear Is it an affect? I mean, does it have reasons? Does it have principles? In my mind, fear is a feeling generated by an undermining or disruption of our assumption of safety and security. Hmm. We go through life, you're walking down the street and it's a nice day, nothing's happening, and all of a sudden, like a torrent of tigers run down the street in your response to that, right? Because now the day isn't so easy, right? The sky doesn't seem as sunny. The presumption of safety and security that one had two seconds before seeing the horde of tigers is now gone. So the response to that is what I would define as fear, like whatever sensation, event, idea, phenomenon that causes us to be thrown off of or call into question our presumption of safety and that ensuing anxiety or discomforting feeling, then that's fear. I was just going to say that when we talked about desire, we brought Spinoza into this. And I think what's interesting about fear as an affect is that it is an affect in relation to something that is not present, maybe not necessarily present. It's the idea of an object that will bring me harm along with the idea of its being present here. For Spinoza, it almost always has this futural element. I don't have fear in the face of the tigers right now. I have fear thinking that the tigers might be chasing me. And I think one of the difficulties we have with confronting, and I don't mean that in a therapeutic sense, but the problem we have in taking up our fears and living with them is precisely because the object of them is not always present. That makes fear sometimes more debilitating. Right. The inability to confront, to see it, to gain a control on it, to sometimes even name it, to fight against it. But the question of, is it an affect? No, because I think there may be very real concerns that people have, even if it's not present. Mm. 
you know, we could talk about how it's culturally informed, how it has to deal a lot with our own individual and subjective experiences. But I think that your response, Lee, that jump you may have when you're startled, yeah, that's the response. But what led to that jump? What went through your mind when you saw somebody pop out of the closet on the screen? Maybe it was, oh shit, that person's going to kill me. Oh my God, what's going to happen to me? My personal sense of safety and security is now being undermined. And then you respond to that with the jump. I'm not sure, again, that I really think that being startled is a great example of fear. And I might want to resist a little bit making fear just an affect, because it does seem to me that with fear, you can in many cases, overcome it, think your way through it, unlike other kinds of affects, which are not so easy to think your way through. And I'll give you an example. Do you guys remember this show, Fear Factor? Yeah, Joe Rogan. Right, yeah. So Fear Factor had basically two kinds of stunts that they pulled for their contestants. One were scary things, bungee jumping or sticking your head in a box of spiders or something like that. And the other was disgusting things like eat cow balls or whatever. Now, I used to say about that show that the second set of stunts were not about fear because you can, even if you're afraid of heights, you can force yourself to bungee jump because, you know, you're going to win a million dollars on this stupid reality mm-hmm. show. For, I mean, it doesn't mean that you're not still afraid of bungee jumping, but it's not debilitating. It's not paralyzing in the way that it might be just in your regular life. And I don't think that that's true of disgust. I think your body will actually reject things that you find disgusting. If you put a bunch of disgusting animals or objects or parts of animals in front of me and said, you've got to eat all of these and you've got to swallow them and you've got to keep them down. I don't think that's something I can decide to do. Right. You know, I can't decide that I'm, I'm just not going to be grossed out by this. So in that sense, it does seem like fear has this other element to it that is a cognitive, rational element to it. I agree that there is a cognitive element, but then I thought your argument was that the rational element comes in, as it were, talking us out of our own fear. So we can apply reason and then the fear might, if not go away, at least be lessened or dissipated or we can get through it. Yeah, but I think that that talking yourself out of the fear or even talking yourself through the fear is some evidence that it's not just involuntary like disgust is, but that it requires you being invested in some kind of a story about why this thing is scary. And you don't have to be invested in that story or you can suspend your investment in that story. No, I completely agree. I think a cognitive element is necessary if we're going to call it fear, because no matter how complex or how seemingly abstract the fear is, i.e. the fear that I'm not being the person that I really should be, there is is something that's playing out in your mind, there's a very real calculation about your investment in who you think you should be and what that means that you now have to live with. I like the distinction you make, Lee, between disgust, right? Because if someone put a bunch of, I know, spider bodies in front of us and eat this, there are a lot of people who are just going to involuntarily blow chunks <laughs> if they see that. And they'd have to come up with the systemic logical reason why I should blow chunks on this. But with fear, you've come to a calculation and you're thinking about what are the results or what are the repercussions of my encounter with this phenomenon. Yeah. And I think this goes back to what both of you were saying earlier. One, that fear is, as Charles described it, the absence of security. 
but the absence of security is not necessarily the thing that you're afraid of. So the thing that you're afraid of is not yet present. So to go back to the example that Charles gave, if I'm walking down the street and it's a beautiful day and I'm feeling very secure and all of a sudden a pack of lions begins to run down the street. I said tigers. I said tigers. tigers runs down the street. I'm not afraid of the tigers. I'm afraid of dying. Right. right? Like right. That's what I'm afraid of. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm afraid of what I think the tigers will do to me. Yeah, and I could certainly, in different circumstances, talk myself through the fear of tigers. For example, when I'm at the zoo and I'm like, look, there's a cage between me and the tiger. I'm not actually in danger. Lee, you raised something interesting that now I think comes back to me with more importance than it even had originally. Namely, that fear can develop in the economy of affects. And so the fact that I love something a fear could develop like I'm afraid they won't love me back or I'm afraid I'm going to lose my beloved. And so fear could then become quite complicated in the entire economy of affects. And again, I think that's why it's so intractable. That's such a good example. You know, I don't think, as I said before, that I'm afraid of me dying But I am terrified of my wife dying, of getting a phone call that she had an accident or something happened. You know, that is an actually terrifying thought for me. Yeah. To what degree does fear reflect one's sense of helplessness and one's vulnerability? Hmm. That I can't stop something from happening to myself or I can't stop something from happening to my children or the next generation of human beings. So that's the first thought that strikes me. The second is the relationship of fear to all these other human emotions. What is its relationship to anger? What is its relationship to desire? What is its relationship to happiness? Is fear in some form woven into all these other forms of human emotional expression? I'm glad you brought up that second point because one distinction that I really wanted to make on this episode when I found out that we were talking about fear is a distinction between the kind of excitement that you feel, for example, when you ride a roller coaster mm. and things that you are actually afraid of. Now, people say, I'm afraid of roller coasters and they ride them. And I think if you're genuinely afraid of roller coasters, you don't ride roller coasters, period. But roller coasters are exciting in a way that resembles fear. The kind of excitement that you feel seems like it might be somehow tangentially related to fear, but you're not actually afraid. And I contrast that with an experience I had about 15 years ago. I was doing a ropes course. You know what I'm talking about, where they tie these ropes between trees and you have to shimmy across the ropes and rappel down to other ropes and then go through these mazes. It was extremely high up in the trees. And of course, we're all geared up and strapped in. It's totally safe. But I got to a point where my fear of heights was so overwhelming that I was just frozen. Like I was gripping onto the ropes and honestly could not ungrip the muscles in my hands. Mm. I could not move forward or move at all. And I had to have somebody come and get me, you know, and help me get down. We often fold fear into other kinds of affects that I think might be misappropriately using the term fear. Same goes with horror movies, by the way. I'm genuinely afraid of horror movies, and I don't go see them. People are like, oh, but it's so much fun. I'm like, it's fun for you because you're not afraid of them. I agree, Lee, and I am genuinely afraid of roller coasters, and therefore I haven't been on one since the day I discovered I was afraid of roller coasters. And that's different than the kind of exhilaration that one feels in the face of danger that one is 
actually confronting. And so standing up against the danger, that's not fear. That's something else. The fear is, I think, as you said, the paralysis. Yeah, I'm terrified of Ferris wheels. I love roller coasters, but I'm terrified of Ferris wheels. Mm. Well, to restate the earlier question about what do we fear, I realize I'm not afraid of heights. I'm afraid of falling from heights. Mm. Well, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre has this really great account where he says when people experience vertigo, they think that it's a fear of falling or a fear of dying, but it's a fear of jumping. In that moment, you realize that there's quite literally nothing standing between you and your death except for your own free decision not to just take one more step off the ledge. And so the real fear, like what we might call existential fear for Sartre is a raw confrontation with the immenseness of our own freedom. That's exactly how I experience the fear of heights, that somehow I'm going to hurl myself off and right. Yeah. Same. Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, If you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson, the doctor's abbreviated, and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. So following up from that last point that we made, is fear voluntaristic at all? I want to go back to your example in the previous segment about people who say they're afraid of roller coasters, yet they ride roller coasters. Yeah, I think if I'm afraid of getting cut with a knife, I'm not going to play with knives. So I think what people may be saying is they really enjoy the adrenaline rush of this experience. And they're confusing that adrenaline rush with fear. And I can see how that can happen because our responses to fearful circumstances of physical destabilization, of psychological unsettling, our bodies can respond with bursts of adrenaline. We can talk about fight or flight. But I think people don't distinguish between the two. And so that's why they say, oh, you know, I'm afraid of roller coasters. No, you're not. You really enjoy that adrenaline rush. You like that heightened emotional sensation. And you're calling that fear, though that's not maybe what fear is. I'm really glad you brought up the fight or flight thing, because this is another thing that I really wanted to mention (laughs) in this episode. I think that a lot of people say when people find themselves afraid, we have as animals just two responses, fight or flight. And that is absolutely not my experience. When I find myself truly afraid, I feel paralyzed. And so in that sense... The adrenaline rush is a paralysis. It's among other things that gets paralyzed is my will to do anything in that moment when I'm afraid. In my experience, that paralysis is maybe also being afraid that I'm going to make the wrong decision. Like if I choose to flee, that would have been the wrong decision if I choose to fight. So you're just like the person in the desert who stands behind the cactus. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but. The other thing I wanted to say is that, in a way, this does go back, Lee, to your earlier point about talking your way out of certain kinds of fears. I don't want to say all of them, one can reason their way out of it. But to go back to Spinoza for a second, and this came up in the Desire episode, for Spinoza.
Spinoza, all affects are imagination. So that's the cognitive relation we have to the thing is we have an image of the thing that is not knowledge of the thing, but we have an image of the thing. And for him, that always means we don't understand its actual causes. And once we do understand its actual causes, then we no longer have an image of it. We have knowledge of it. And therefore, the affect falls away. You know, that's a great point. Because if we talk about fear as having this element of reason, for lack of a better term, or fears come about through our thinking about them, it's so interesting that in many cases, our imagination takes that reasoning and exaggerates it. Because how many times have you been afraid of something? And let's say, for example, children getting vaccinations, taking shots. And you're like, oh my God, it's because it's, it's, right, you've calculated, you've reasoned that it's going to be so enormously painful to have someone shove a thin piece of sharp sort of metal into one's skin. Well, when you put it like that, it actually is a reasonable fear. But then you actually get the shot and you realize, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. This is me every time I'm trying to answer an email. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And also that's me every time I get a shot. <laughs> but just to be clear for Spinoza, that first thing, Charles, you talked about, the way in which I give an account in which this is going to be massively painful he would never use the word reason for that. That will always be imagination. And reason will always be related to the account of the actual causes of the thing. So I think there are ways in which to use the larger term he would use, logic. I have certainly thought my way into fears that I didn't have before. Just to give an example, since I had moose last night, <laughs> what if when... <laughs> I'm going to use that in my classes from now on, just to get an example, because I had moose last night. I did moose last night. (laughs) Every conference session here forth, I will say, because I had moose last night, let me give an example. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) We lost him. I can't can't come back. Okay. Go ahead, moose. (laughs) So so I could imagine... Come on, Bullwinkle. Bullwinkle, yeah. I could imagine that I could start thinking, oh, is this a wild moose? Is this a farmed moose? Will it have worms? Will those worms get into my gut? And now will I live the rest of my life with some kind of tapeworm? And then will it poke out of my arm at some point? And I could have told myself a story in which I could have worked up a fear of this. And while I didn't do that last night... I think I do that often with a lot of things. I tell a story to myself that brings me into a fear that I didn't have without telling that story to myself. I do still think that there is a reasoning that goes into what we're calling fear or fearful responses. But I think what happens is imagination, I guess because of the overinvestment in that reasoning, the addition or the exaggeration of our calculation about what harm this thing can do to us leads us to deeply, deeply irrational behaviors in response to that initial reasoning. So I don't want to get caught in the weeds of Spinoza's scholarship. So let me just say, rather than use the word reason there, I would just use the word logic. There is a logic to the fear. The reason why Spinoza wouldn't use the word reason is because it doesn't engage a true account of the actual causes. But there is a logic, right? right? So one thing follows from another. And so in general, there is a logic to it. I don't want to get into the weeds of Spinoza either, but I do want to push a little bit on this true account of the actual causes thing, because I'm thinking about, for example, that I have a genuine fear of being abducted or being raped. Now, obviously, 
for that fear to operate. That does have to include an imagination of something that has not happened. Nevertheless, it is the case that there's a logic to why I have that fear, namely that violence against women, for example, is rampant in this country. And certainly in certain circumstances where I might find myself, there might be significantly more danger to me than in other situations. And therefore, the fear might also be significantly more reasonable, we might say. I'm not sure that because it also imagines that phenomenon happening to me and that phenomenon hasn't yet happened to me. So therefore, I'm imagining something that hasn't yet happened. I'm not sure that still I'm not giving a true account in terms of the relationship between me, the world I'm living in, the environment that I'm in and the thing that I'm afraid of, as opposed to, for example, being afraid of ghosts. So I think you're right. And just to be clear, I was just offering this is what Spinoza says about it, not that it's the best or even a good account of how something like fear operates. But I think, Lee, what you're pointing out is the kind of limitation of what we might call the rationalist project in general, that if only we could be completely and totally rational we would understand that all things follow necessarily from one another, and then we would not hate one another, we would not fear anything. But as some other more contemporary philosophers might point out, that version of reason might actually be the one to fear. And we should really be afraid of that version of reason. And I think because of the things you've been pointing out, the fear is not unreasonable and also not irrational. It might Mm -hmm. become irrational if right now while you're sitting there, you can't get over it and you're constantly thinking about it. But the fear as you phrased it, I agree 100% with you that it's neither unreasonable nor irrational for sure. Even if you knew the true causes of what brings someone to an abduction or rape and so on, that makes it less fearful? How? Yeah, right. So the question I feel compelled to ask is, so now, how is fear good? How is fear a beneficial part of our makeup? Because we've constructed this whole conversation as fear as this unproductive, this negative, possibly even destructive emotion to have. But can we talk about the benefits of fear? I think that's a really good question. And I'm not sure that my answer is not, again, going to use an example of something that I probably wouldn't really include under the category of fear. But I think there's a kind of anxiety that feels very much like fear that I get before, for example, big things Mm. are due or I have to do some kind of a performance Mm. of some sort or I have to meet people who, for whatever reason, meeting them is important. And it motivates me to get things done. I saw this really great TikTok the other day where someone said the worst thing for getting something done is having enough time. (laughs) It's it's like, you know, know, the closer the deadline gets, the more afraid I get of not getting it done on time, the more motivating it is for me to actually get things done and to do them well. But again, I'm not positive that that's fear because I kind of do want to stick to my description of at least the affect of fear as being paralyzing and not exciting, not motivating, not exhilarating, but paralyzing. So yeah, maybe what I'm describing is anxiety and not fear. Could you speak further to that in terms of distinguishing anxiety from fear? I know you've said it, but something's tickling the back of my brain, so. Well, you know, full disclosure, I'm not a psychologist. And so I don't have a airtight definition of anxiety. 
And obviously there are clinical modes of anxiety that are different than the garden variety anxiety that I'm talking about. But I do think that the affect of anxiety I often experience as a kind of nervousness, yeah. sometimes also a kind of excitement. It can make my ability to accomplish things or process through thoughts a little bit disorganized and feel like I have less control over them. But it's not paralyzing. That's a nice distinction. And again, I also want to iterate that it's not the way that clinicians would use the term anxiety. And so I do like the term nervousness to describe that. But I think also with that nervousness, I find the same thing with fear, out and out fear. An example I would give is if you're raised in a city, one of the things that I think most people come to fear is being where there is no one else. Mm -hmm. It's not that you fear being alone. It's that you fear the person who's going to come into this empty space is going to do me harm. And so you learn then to be afraid of spaces where there are no people. I'm totally afraid of yeah. woods. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when we were driving to the Ozarks, it was nighttime and I kept just staring out the window and Cassandra was like, what are you looking at? I was like, I want to see if there's any people <laughs> yeah. in the woods. Exactly, right? It seems to me it's not necessarily the open space. It's the type of people that we believe live in those rural, non-urban spaces. So I was thinking, right, deliverance is really what you're afraid of. But I didn't even mean rural spaces. Like if I'm in downtown Chicago, and I'm walking down State Street at one in the morning and there's no one out, I'm afraid. Rapture. <laughs> so, oh my God, I'm a sinner. I have not been summoned into the heavens. <laughs> you say that as if you're so convinced I'm not going to be one of the taken. <laughs> when I moved to State College, I had to, in fact, talk my way out of it because there are fewer people there and often you could be somewhere at 10 p.m. and it's perfectly safe and there's no one near you. Mm -hmm. But... I think one of the positive aspects of that is that it trains you to avoid situations in which you might actually be in danger or that you might put yourself in danger. And I think that's an incredibly positive aspect of fear. Mm -hmm. If we've agreed that a part of fear is a particular calculation, a logic, then to be fearless means that you've stopped utilizing certain types of logic. You've delinked from certain evaluations of circumstances, which could lead you to be vulnerable to or not prepared for the possibilities of that space or that phenomenon. Or you just haven't learned them yet. Yeah. You know, we have to teach children to be afraid of things. Yeah. You know, when they're running around with knives in their hands, and <laughs> setting off firecrackers and whatever, we have to say, don't go to the dude's van. He doesn't have any ice right. cream. Right? <laughs> like you should be you sh stranger is danger. Right. right. So I like the way that Rig described it, that sometimes fear is useful in teaching you things that you maybe didn't already understand were dangerous situations, but that you should be afraid of. I think we should point out here again, we're not clinicians and there can be fears that become right. clinically disabling. And I think we're not talking about that right now. Right, right. So completely agree, fear can be good. A lack of fearlessness is often described as pure stupidity. But in terms of children having to learn behaviors to keep them safe, and as a parent of a child, several children, do we necessarily have to instill in them fear? Or can we find another way to get them to understand there are ways to keep yourself safe outside of instilling this particular emotional response? But when I say X is dangerous, whether it's to a child or to an adult, 
I don't have any control over whether informing them, teaching them that lesson is going to instill fear in them or not. But I probably do think this is something that you should be afraid of. You should be nervous of, or you should at least be apprehensive about. I agree with you. Like, obviously, we don't want to raise children to just be afraid. I'm not sure that we have a lot of control over that. But I do think that when we say this is dangerous, we do kind of want them to understand that this is something there's good reason to be afraid of. I don't have human children, but I've seen enough parents of human children who, when the child is walking toward the proverbial hot stove or out into traffic, the parent doesn't have the time to say, hey, this is dangerous. No, I mean, it's really dangerous. So maybe you want to think a little bit. No, they're screaming and running and shouting. And I think one positive side of that, and this goes back to Spinoza, is that affects are frequently more powerful than reason. Therefore, to teach a child through affect, although I'm ready to admit all of the dangers of that, is sometimes perhaps the most powerful way to teach them. Right, and the children also are taught through the response because you're modeling how to respond to this yeah. particular circumstance with the fear, with the anger, with the screaming. I think this idea of trying to instill fear is a really interesting idea. And I think it operates not only at the individual level, but also society-wide. I'm thinking of, for example, sundown signs, mm. these signs that in the south would put at the edge of town that basically said, don't be caught here after sundown if you're black. There's no particular threat being communicated there. There's no particular danger being communicated there. It is meant to instill fear. And by the way, not only in the South, a city in California well into the 50s was a sundown town. Mm. But also what's interestingly about what you said is, and I can't remember where it came up. It was either in a mafia movie or a documentary about the mafia or something like that, where someone said, if you say to someone, I'm going to break your knees, that gives them the possibility to get their head around it and think, oh, okay, maybe I could survive that. But if the threat is actually more generalized so that the one you're threatening can't even conceive of what the danger is, that yeah. becomes incredibly powerful for instilling fear. Or the person has now time to think about an encyclopedia. Yeah of yeah. terrible things that can happen to them. I'm going to make you wish you never met me. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to make you eat this moose. <laughs> <laughs> On a roller coaster. <laughs> if it's not clear, this is M-O-O-S-E, not M-O-U. It's not moose, like a chocolate fluffy dessert. I'm glad you clarified that oh, yeah, for the right. listeners, because I didn't want people to think that you were really intimidated by this fluffy <laughs> chocolate infection. Okay, let me reorder my fears. Chocolate mousse bites. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email a audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. 
So we've talked about fear in terms of our own individual experiences. We've talked about it in terms of subjective states of consciousness. I'm very curious to think about fear on a social or even the civilizational level. And can we have the same questions about fear at that level, at that scale, that we may have about it operating at the level or at the scale of the individual? I want to say as someone who really came of age in the cushy consumerist Clinton years, that... Nice alliteration. Thank you. (laughs) Since (laughs) 9-11, this has been a very different world. And I think that the primary difference has been that everything is framed in terms of security and threat. And I think that that's not been good for us as a society to be so invested in security and many times security theater, like taking your shoes off at the airport. But I do think that it makes our society or it has made our society defined by its fears in many ways. And it's also given people who have interest in stoking those fears or manufacturing fears quite the lever to move society Mm. with. Well, as someone who came of age during the rancid rotting Reagan (laughs) era, I don't see much of a difference between post 9-11 America and Cold War America in terms of the pervasiveness of fear, the constant sense of an external threat. And one of the things that I know the generation that we teach have no reckoning of is the very real fear of nuclear annihilation. Mm -hmm. So for me, this feels like a constant theme, possibly of the post-World War II world, but it just takes on different faces based upon the shifting geopolitical and social dynamics. Yeah, yeah. But I think, Charles, I would push back against that a little bit. The difference between the post-9-11 feeling of fear and the Cold War was, in a sense, post 9-11, we had an example of something to fear. Whereas in the Cold War, it was just a kind of generalized annihilation that did not have a specific example of what that would look like and how that would work out. And I think one difference that that made was the way in which we pursued security with that kind of fear was all behind scene. We didn't see the TSA at the airport. We didn't see Department of Homeland Security officers in city streets. And now we do. And we, I think, actually kind of welcome that visible response to the fear that comes post 9-11. The performance of security certainly is much more pervasive and even now mundane post 9-11. You're right, taking off your shoes at the airport, all of that foolishness. But there were very public displays of how do we maintain order? How are we fighting against the other? Whether it be every four years talk of America's losing the arms race and you have these images on TV of all of these Soviet nuclear submarines and how few the United States have or this very bellicose language about defending America's interests and the investment in these proxy wars between the Soviet Union and the United States. So I think maybe not as mundane as we're experiencing now, but it was still very public in terms of reminding people of what they should be afraid of, reminding people of what the threat was, reminding people of what was going to make their safe, regular, stable life insecure. There are a lot of similarities to the way that fear was stoked and managed in the Cold War and in the post 9-11 war. But I do think that our collective language and logic of security got much more subtle and much more sophisticated post 9-11. And Chris Erickson, who wrote this book called The Poetics of Fear, A Human Response to Human Security, 
calls this the Shield of Achilles logic. So he's referring to the long account of the Shield of Achilles in Homer's Odyssey. And he says that one of the things that describing danger in such detail does is that it turns threats into challenges. So they're not these vague existential fears anymore, but they're things about which we have to figure out how to handle them using ordinary means, as he says. And I think that one of the things that we've seen in the 9-11 world post 9-11 world is that everything is being managed. Security is being managed. Fears are being managed. Threats are being managed. And on the one hand, that makes us obsess over those things and that management and that sort of bureaucratization of them. But on the other hand, it allows for us to be distracted from the still present actual existential threats like global climate change, like the rapid development of artificial intelligence. Global capitalism. Global capitalism. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Neoliberalism. Yeah. Yes. The real threats. Yeah. No, and I think that's a really important point. And I think that gets at what I was trying to point out in the difference between the fear of the Cold War and the fear post 9-11. I just want to point out how bizarre it is to now be talking about comparative regimes of fear and which was more or less or how to characterize them. But one difference is that the Cold War was a fear not that a bomb might go off in New York or Chicago or Miami or whatever. It was a fear of global annihilation. That was fear that was always also mixed with dread. I don't think the post 9-11 fear is mixed with dread as much as it was experienced in the Cold War. Well, tell me more about that. How are you distinguishing the role of dread between these two epochs? The mutually assured destruction policy was the only defense. That was the only security against a nuclear attack. But that defense was not a defense. That defense was, if you kill us, we're killing you. And then it's game over. That's it. That's how that's going to play out. Not to go back to the plot of war games, but it's a game that's not winnable. And that's the kind of dread I think that fear brings about that I don't see coming along with the fear of a terrorist attack and so on. So let me ask this through Lee's lens from the previous segments. She distinguishes between a certain type of nervousness slash anxiety versus the paralyzing sensation that I think Lee argued that real fear brings about to a subject. Is that happening to the society? Do we find ourselves now in a paralysis versus the type of, as you say, dread that was experienced during the Cold War? Well, just to repeat what I said before, I think that we are constantly distracted from the things about which we might have real existential fear, a paralyzing existential fear, global climate change, global capitalism, artificial intelligence. And I think that what distracts us from those things are fears used in crass utilitarian ways to move political agendas or move political parties or political actors in one way or another. This is such a terrible story, but I saw a interview with a pro-gun rights activist shortly after the school shooting at Cobb Elementary. And one of the things that the interviewer was asking him was how would he respond to the mother of one of these children who was in the school and who survived, who said, I don't know how I can ever send my child back to school again. I'm terrified. I'm terrified to drop them off at a school again. And content warning, this is a horrifying answer. But he said, well, actually, I would tell her 
that she has less reason to be afraid, even though there are increasing numbers of school shootings in the United States. Almost no student has ever been in two of them. Oh, I know it's terrible, but effectively he was saying, okay, there's a unacceptable percentage risk that if you drop your kid off to school, that they will be involved in a school shooting. But there's almost a 0% chance that if they've been in a school shooting before, that they'll be in another one. I just saw Stanley Tucci saying, may the odds ever be in your favor. Yeah, I mean, it's just obscene, really. Nevertheless, I do think it's indicative of, again, what Erickson calls the shield of Achilles logic, the way that we have turned these fears into manageable programs so that we can talk about them in ways that really do just flatly deny the existential fear that parents in the United States rightly should feel about dropping their kids off to school. Because there's nothing they would say we can do about that. Just like there's nothing we can do about global capitalism. There's nothing we can do about climate change. Let's do things about the things that we can do things about. And so this dude's suggestion was, I don't know, arm the teachers or lock the doors or whatever. But just to answer Charles's question, I mean, I do think that we're meant to be distracted from things about which we would have a paralyzing fear but that being redirected to things about which we might be afraid, but something can be done often opens up the door for really terrible programs to be introduced. At least in the United States, there are two parties. And by parties, I don't mean necessarily political affiliation, though that can be linked, but there are two broad groupings around questions of fear. So you have the people who are actually being very successfully distracted from the real threats and challenges that face humanity by, oh, you've got immigrants coming in through the southern border, or there's the replacement theory, or whatever foolishness Steve Bannon and that cohort are able to continue to whip up. But then you have the other party, which are really in a very real paralysis, and they see the things that we should really be concerned about. The spread of globalization, neoliberal domination, global climate change, and its effects. And both parties are just frozen into this state of deep problematic logics in terms of how do we navigate this and how do we actually begin to work through these concerns, real or unreal. I don't agree with the conservative whipping up a fear, but I will grant that for those people who believe this, that's a real thing for them. I mean, I'd agree with it. I think it's incorrect, but I recognize the logic that they have as being earnest and sincere. And I think some of this, what Erickson calls Achilles shield logic, again, can be even more direct than the examples that Lee gave earlier. So, Charles, you raised the southern border and problems with immigration, and there's a way in which that fear is placed on immigrants coming over our border so that that can be managed because the wall will then solve that problem and so on, because the actual problem is, I I wouldn't say it's intractable, but it's much more complicated than that. And so now we address this thing, and I love that you, Lee, reminded us of this term that Erickson uses. It's now manageable, but we also don't even focus on the thing that we should be really afraid of. Yeah, and it's no wonder that millions and millions of people find this an attractive rhetoric, because people do feel existential fear in the 21st century, and they don't know what to do about it. I mean, maybe in some cases, if we're talking about climate change, it might be too late to do anything about it. And so it's much easier to latch on to a narrative that says critical race theory is something to really be fearful of because there's actual things that you can do. You can go to your PTA meeting and you can ban books. And you know, just to get back to what Charles was asking in the last segment, 
maybe this is a roundabout way of saying here's another example of a way in which the experience of fear can be a good thing because it doesn't distract you from real dangers. Mm. I do think that we are trying to not feel fear. Mm. But sometimes we need to feel fear so that we don't follow the squirrel wherever it yeah. you know, just darted. Yeah. Fear gets things done. Mm. Well, that's interesting that you say that because only some kinds of fears get things done. And maybe those are the kinds of fears that we really shouldn't be so afraid of because we can do something. Guided fears. I've got you afraid. Now let me show you what to do with that fear or how to handle that fear or how to work through that fear. Or what might be the same thing, exploitable fears. Right. Oh, without a doubt, right. the same thing. Without a doubt. But, I mean, then the problem is the examples we've been playing with, let's just start with global climate change. That's something we should be afraid of. And as you said, Lee, it may be that we can't do anything about it now. It's too late. But we could maybe do some amelioration and mitigation of the catastrophic end or something like that. But we're not even focusing on the problem at all both because perhaps that fear is too paralyzing and also because we're distracted by these managed, exploited fears so that we can't even pay attention to something we should actually be afraid of. Often the distractions are themselves creating other dangers Mm. that we should have existential fears about. Here, obviously, I'm thinking about COVID. If I'm going to exploit and manipulate your fear of having your individual rights infringed upon, then I'm going to be able to get you to go to your city council and say, we don't want mask mandates. But in that distraction, I'm creating another thing, the possibility for more variants, the possibility for a much more dangerous global pandemic about which we have species-threatening dangers, but we're not going to be afraid of those because we want to go to Applebee's with our face open and eat moose. (laughs) Endless breadsticks. Isn't that Olive Garden? you guys unfortunately the thing that we all fear last call <laughs> has arrived and noelle has asked us for our last drinks while she's pouring those and wiping down the bar let me ask you charles any last thoughts on fear to me anger is linked to fear and i think anger becomes a manifestation of the frustration that people feel in the midst of fear the sense of being unable to navigate and to resolve the thing that discomforts them. So at some point we can talk more about the interrelationship between various emotions, but yeah, that's what I'm gonna walk away with because that helps me to understand what's going on in terms of the social turbulence in the country now. The anger we see is really about a fear on a part of a certain segment of the population. And if I could just follow on that, I think there's a flip side of that, that many people are angry that they have to be afraid about things they shouldn't have to be afraid about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we already discussed immigration. Immigrants are angry that they have to be afraid of things that they shouldn't have to be afraid of. You know, I wouldn't in general describe myself as a fearful person, but I do find every year that I am more inclined to say that 
people should be more afraid. Be afraid. Be, afraid. <laughs> be very afraid. People are just not afraid enough about some things that we should really be afraid of. What you should not be afraid of is donating to this podcast on patreon.com. We have set up a page there. It's patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. Go ahead and kick back a few dollars so that we can keep this conversation going. We have plenty of things that we can talk about for the rest of the season to make you afraid. But with that said, anybody want to call a cab? Are they are they even safe anymore? <laughs> I would call a cab, but I'm in Stockholm. Well, I'm not walking down those lonely streets by myself. <laughs> Thank you. Safety in numbers. <laughs> All right, you guys. Good night, y'all. I'll see you next time. Good night. Good night.